Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with John Dos Passos Coggin, author of the new book, Walk in Lawton. I fell in love with the folk hero aspect uh, of his story, his sensitivity to, to people of all cultures. We'll remember an old Florida turkey farm. They had big shoots built that they dropped the turkey in where the head would come out and then they cut the throat and let it drain the blood. The discovery of ancient canoes and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Moving in silent desperation Keeping an eye on the Hypothetical destination Say who is this walking man Lawton Childs was one of Florida's most respected and influential politicians. During his four-decade political career in the Florida House of Representatives, the Florida State Senate, and the United States Senate, and as a two-term governor of the state, Childs worked for transparency in government, health care reform, and successfully fought the advertising practices of the tobacco industry. John Despasos Coggin has written the book Walkin' Lawton, which is being called the definitive biography of Lawton Childs. Coggins' articles have appeared in the Tampa Bay Times, the Baltimore Sun, and the Florida Times Union. He is the maternal grandson of the politically inspired novelist John Dos Passos, who is best known for his USA trilogy. His influence began uh, when I first read his books, uh, which was in high school. Um, Before high school, uh, his, uh, his legacy, his Memory was uh, was known to me through my mom's stories of what he was as a man, as a father, uh, as a friend to many people in, uh, in in the Northern Neck where he made his home for the last years of his life. But in high school, reading his famous trilogy, the U.S. USA, uh, I first came I came to know uh, I felt his sensibilities, his political motives, uh, the fullness of his character. And that first reading taught me about myself uh, as well. It taught me uh, about uh, what I was later to become, that that instincts for writing, instincts for composition, for creative uh, and, and imaginative pursuits would... Uh, would be a calling that would uh, that I would feel one day. John Despasso's Coggin was inspired to write the book Walkin' Lawton based on stories he heard during his own political activism in Florida. 
During the 2004 presidential campaign, Coggin made his way to Florida to work in one of a handful of swing states that determine the outcome of our country's presidential elections. My first big dip into political campaign experience uh, was uh, the spring or late winter of uh, 2004 uh, when Howard Dean, uh, a Democrat, was running for president and uh, making a last uh, big effort, a last big push for the New Hampshire primary. Uh, I was so inspired by the work I did, the grassroots work I did on that campaign, knocking on doors, that uh, I decided I wanted to continue that um, and pursue work on the Kerry campaign. That brought me to Orlando, Florida, uh, summer of 2004, I worked as a canvasser, uh, knocking on doors, reaching out to hundreds and hundreds of voters. Uh, the approximate total number of doors I hit was was 6,000 uh, during that summer. And uh, it changed me as a, as a person. It changed my political outlook. It gave me a, a deep appreciation for the people who uh, put their – who. Um, put their feet on the uh, one foot in front of the other and um, work to uh, push campaigns forward, no matter the conditions, uh, whether it be hurricanes, extreme heat. Uh, and I felt after that summer and fall, uh, I worked the campaign through to completion uh, on Election Day. Um, I, I, gained, I acquired a kinship uh, with uh, a knowledge of the Lawton Child's legacy and a kinship with what I thought he represented, which was a, a commitment to that style of campaigning door to door, no matter the odds and no matter the extremes. John Paso's Coggin conducted more than a hundred interviews with the family, friends, co-workers, and political opponents of Lawton Child's to create the book Walkin' Lawton. Coggin says that many of the people he spoke with were great storytellers. I think the top of the list is uh, Bob Harris. Uh, he grew up in Lakeland. Uh, he was a history teacher and was plucked uh, from that career by Lawton Childs uh, very early in his Senate career. And he became, in addition to a watchdog on uh, government reform and government corruption issues, uh, he became a, a, a an advisor on issues of race. Uh, he uh, became uh, one of one of uh, Childs's most precious uh, um, conveyors of of counsel on racial issues in Florida and uh, across the nation. And uh, the bonds that they developed uh, was fascinating to me. Uh, the strength of it uh, and and Harris. Um, was just a prodigious and uh, wonderfully talented storyteller. In Walkin' Lawton, John Dos Passos Coggin illuminates both the political career and the personal life of Lawton Childs. Coggin says the Childs' boyhood in Lakeland, Florida, helped to shape the person and the politician he would become. I think the unique quality of his boyhood in Lakeland's that is something we don't appreciate anymore in this in this age of mass media of 24-hour news is the fact that political engagement, uh, attendance to 
the political rallies that occurred in downtown Lakeland and Munn Park specifically was both entertainment and a source of information. It was as entertaining and as lively to Lakelanders like Lawton Childs as a trip to the movies, as a trip to a baseball game. Uh, it was something that brought families together uh, and something that families continued to talk about over the dinner table after rallies. Uh, and those, uh, it, was a, it was a source of kinship for Childs. It was a, it was a family bonding experience. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that uh, he came to love that uh, and, and, and feel love that those experiences and feel nostalgia for that era uh, decades later. As the title Walk in Lawton indicates, Lawton Childs first became known to most people by walking the entire state during his 1970 campaign for Florida's U.S. Senate seat. He began with only 4% statewide name recognition and won the election. Childs' worn-out walking boots are on display in the state capitol. The walk was a signature uh, event in his life. It was something that uh, imprinted his personality and his politics for the rest of his life. It was not only the piece of, not only a campaign technique that catapulted him uh, from obscurity to uh, to fame and to uh, uh, to renown. Ultimately, it was uh, it was something that changed him uh, personally. Uh, he was no longer just an average Floridian uh, who could fade into the crowd. Uh, he was no longer an average Florida politician who could fade into obscurity um, and feel no qualms about it. He knew that thereafter um, he had to be different uh, because he, he felt it literally, in his words, as a cross to bear. Uh, the obligation he felt to Floridians uh, and, and asking for their trust uh, person to person and shaking thousands of, of, uh, of hands. Um, the walk was a promise to Florida, and uh, he did his very best to keep it. As Lawton Childs walked back and forth across the state and from one end to the other, he stopped to talk with many people along the way. These discussions with the people of Florida changed some of Child's key political perspectives, perhaps most notably his views on the Vietnam War. John Dos Passos Coggin. He did allow himself to be changed and allowed himself to be humble uh, throughout uh, his walking campaign from uh, his, its beginnings in Century, Florida, on the Alabama border to its ends in Key Largo, uh, on on the uh, in south in the furthest south of Florida, uh, it was and it was a classroom for him. It was a political classroom, and uh, where he allowed himself to be a student and allowed voters uh, to be teachers. And uh, perhaps the most visible, uh, impressionable change was on Vietnam policy, where he changed over the course of the walk from a hawk to a dove. Um, and uh, and many voters who met him on that campaign, uh, really, they recognized that change, and uh, it, it was, for some, it was, it was a reason to vote for him. Lawton Childs is also well known for his sense of humor and his use of Florida colloquialisms. His ability to connect with people made him a very popular politician that people still remember fondly today. I think it was his love for people, uh, and part of that was his love for 
the way people talked, uh, and that and that was across cultures. He's most known uh, for his affinity for uh, North Florida and other rural areas of Florida for the way uh, that um, the the way that people talked and uh, bringing nature into the conversation, talking about the natural environments. Uh, it's very similar to the way that, that Native Americans did and associating um, animals, plants, uh, foods, popular foods. Um, you know, the saying that the old Hikun walks just before the light of day, uh, the saying that perhaps he's best known for as, as Florida's governor, uh, was uh, was a way to be funny uh, in a way, and his and his humor came across to people. But it was also um, just an appeal to uh, the way Florida, uh, for the best Florida's and what was and were was in his mind Florida's best traditions uh, of being close to nature, being close to, uh, and, and that meant fishing and hiking and hunting as well, um, and. Uh, but he he not only reached across cultural divides um, in uh, in the Panhandle and rural areas in Florida. He also he loved the way uh, Spanish Florida spoke. He loved Cubans. He loved uh, mixing with all types of colors, uh, uh, all types of cultures, and uh, and and I think that was what made him an enduring part of uh, Florida's political culture from decade to decade. Lawton Child's efforts to reform health care sparked a national debate that continues today. The successful Truth Campaign that discourages teen smoking is the result of Child's litigation against the tobacco industry. He championed transparency in government, resulting in important legislation. His very frugal campaigns, which were always successful, are models for backers of campaign finance reform. John Despasos Coggin. I think his greatest achievements can be bo- boiled down to three uh, essential areas. Uh, one was uh, bringing government closer to the people, accountability, transparency. Uh, he's perhaps best known for the Government in the Sunshine Act, uh, which passed uh, toward the very end of his first term in the U.S. Senate. Uh, it was one of his proudest accomplishments, opening up the doors of the federal government to, uh, to everyone. Uh, he's also very well known for uh, his children's policy, children's welfare, uh, health, education, children's health and education. Uh, those were paramount to him. Uh, and uh, related to the third uh, area of achievement, which was on uh, tobacco control. John Despasos Coggin began this project looking at the legendary figure of Lawton Giles, but through his research discovered a complex man who he brings to life for the reader. One of the aspects of him that was brand new to me and a wonderful surprise was his appreciation for Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, one of America's best philosophers. Um, He read Emerson, he thought about Emerson deeply, he related it to his political activities in the U.S. Senate. Uh, The essay Circles by Emerson was a favorite of his. Uh, And that was an aspect of him that I was very pleased to, to discover and uh, was just one of the, the enriching surprises uh, on the research trail. John Despasos Coggin is author of the book Walk in Lawton, which is being called the definitive biography of Lawton Childs. You can find the book at myfloridahistory.org slash Lawton or at amazon.com where it's also available as a Kindle ebook. He's the walking man Born in Lawton 
walk on walking man. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books like Walk in Lawton, get a membership in the Florida Historical Society for yourself or as a gift, and find out about all of our great projects and programs. That's myfloridahistory.org. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. When the Spaniards founded St. Augustine in Florida nearly 450 years ago, They proceeded to found our nation's first city government, first school, first hospital, first city plan, first parish church, and first mission to the native populations. It is our nation's city of centuries, founded one year following the death of Michelangelo and the birth of William Shakespeare. Not until 42 years later would English Jamestown in Virginia be founded, Not until 56 years later would the pilgrims in Massachusetts observe their famous Thanksgiving. St. Augustine's settlers celebrated the nation's first Thanksgiving over a half century earlier, on September 8, 1565. Following a religious service, the Spaniards shared a communal meal with the local native tribe. The menu was a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans, accompanied with ship's bread and red wine. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould speaks with a woman who grew up working on a Florida turkey farm. A turkey farm west of Vero Beach used to get really busy when the holidays approached. A man named Christian Albright operated the farm in the late 1940s after he moved to the area from Buffalo, New York. Every spring he ordered a thousand chicks, and by fall the big birds were ready to be slaughtered for Thanksgiving. One of Albright's daughters, Ruth McLeod, had a task that was messy but essential for getting the turkeys ready for market. They had big chutes built that they dropped the turkey in where the head would come out, and then they cut the throat and let it drain the blood. They needed all the blood drained before they did anything. Then after that, they'd take it over and have scalding water and had a big machine that had prongs. They're made of rubber. They'd hold that turkey on the thing, and the thing would spin around and take the feathers off. They had to keep the heads on. How come? For selling, the people had to cut the heads off themselves. The customers? They had to cut it off themselves unless they'd asked you to cut it off. But then we'd have to take the insides out. That was your job? Dad would start, oh, around 2 in the morning butchering, and I'd get up there around 3. I'd got turkeys till daylight, clean out the insides. But at this time, I was married, and I was working at the packing house daytime, so my dad used me very well, you know, when it was butcher time. Did he pay you for that? No, he didn't. That was for love. (laughs) 
How many turkeys could you uh, gut, let's say, in an hour, I wonder? Was there a, an assembly line process yes. that you used? Yeah, we had a table. They'd hang them, and then they'd uh, kill them. Then they'd get the feathers off, and they'd lay them over my table where we'd gut them. It was a big mess to get all that stuff together. And it was a process. It was a hard process. I don't know why I got so involved, but I did. Because you were his daughter. I was just used to saying yes whenever he asked. How much did he get a pound for the turkeys? Do you remember? It was cheap. They were a little more expensive than they were in the store. You know that Mr. Cox that used to be the funeral home director? He'd make a special point to go over there, and we'd have to kill it while he was there. He wanted to make sure it was as fresh as we said it was. He had to see us do the whole thing. I didn't think it was that interesting myself. Because you had done it so much. It was too much. How were the turkeys delivered to the customers? Well, we'd load them in the car and take them and deliver them. I'd have addresses. Some place I went house to house. The day before Thanksgiving? No, a couple days before Thanksgiving. Or mainly the big ones, we'd have them come out to the house. You know, we'd take orders, and they'd kill them to fill the orders. Oh, I wouldn't go through that again? No way. In other words, you're glad those years are behind you. Oh, thank the Lord, yes. To me, it's a lot of hard work for nothing. But I was happy to help. And they were not frozen? No, ma'am. You didn't freeze a turkey then. Now, we kept it for ourselves. We'd freeze it till it's time to fix it. Did you enjoy eating turkey on Thanksgiving Day? Uh, yes, my mother was the best cook there was. She fixed two or three big turkeys. At that time, the whole family would come. There would be about 20 of us. And we just had a big feed together. So you still love to eat turkey? Oh, sure. That didn't bother me. Hey, that was a way of living at that time. When the holidays come around, do you roast a turkey, Mrs. McLeod? No, ma'am, not anymore. I used to. used to have all the kids here, but... I'm tired of that now. Let somebody else do the cooking. Yes, ma'am, and I'll fix what they want me to fix. I don't do the big cooking anymore. My daughter-in-law's do that. And I'm gathering that they don't actually slaughter their own turkey. They probably go to Publix. <laughs> that's right. A lot of times I'll go buy the turkey at Walmart's. That's cheaper than raising one and butchering it, that's for sure. Ruth McLeod, a widow with four grown children, lives not too far from the old turkey farm. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. A few thousand years ago, canoes were one of the most popular modes of transportation in Florida. Bill Dudley reports on the discovery of more than a hundred prehistoric canoes at Noonan's Lake near Gainesville. On a summer's morning, a group of archaeologists and helpers are hard at work on the north side of Noonan's Lake, just east of Gainesville. They're digging in wet sand with trowels and hands, uncovering the remains of canoes left behind by people who lived here nearly 5,000 years ago. We tried to carefully brush and remove sand with our hands, but trowel where we could in certain places. So it was kind of a mixture of methods. The wood is very, very, it looks good to the naked eye, but technically there's a lot of decay and deterioration. As an archaeobotanist at the Florida Museum of Natural History, Donna Rule was called to identify the nature of the wood. Of the boats that could be analyzed, most were pine, but a few were cypress. Pine was a wood that has a lot of resins in it, and the technology for the dugout canoe is to actually burn in part and chip away with a stone tool or a shell tool in this part of the state or this part of the country. Cypress, which is really, even though it's technically, biologically called a softwood, 
it's hard, it's durable, and much harder to break down. And I think there would have been a heck of a lot more time involved with working cypress without metal tools. The ancient canoes were first found in the dry lake bed in the spring of 2000 by a Gainesville high school teacher and some of his students doing environmental work. As more and more boats were uncovered, archaeologists were amazed at the magnitude of the discovery. There are more canoes at Noonan's Lake within two miles of shoreline than have ever been found anywhere else, as far as I know, in the world at one time. It's not simply by chance that there happen to be a lot of canoes there, just like there are everywhere else, but we haven't found them elsewhere. It truly is a case that there are many, many canoes here. Florida's state archaeologist Jim Miller says canoes made sense to a society without draft animals or anything with wheels. Prehistoric people, Indian people, lived around Noonan's Lake, and clearly the canoe does two things. It offers a way to exploit an environment, a watery environment like that lake, And it also offers the only way in pre-Columbian America to travel long distances other than by walking. But finding so many boats in one place has raised new questions for the experts. Thinking about abandonment, thinking about drifts, water that, you know, the wind having an effect on the lake and bringing them over to one edge of the lake. But then they should be more piled up than they really were. By and large, they really did have a north-south kind of orientation as though they were sort of tethered or brought to the shore and left there. There was one, I believe, that appeared as though it was set up on pilings or some such thing, and so that always led us to wonder about the possibility of them being intentionally made there as well as the fact that they're deposited there for whatever reason. In the Creek language, the name of Noonan's Lake is Pithlachoco, and we were informed by the chief of the Seminole tribe that that is a name which means place of long boats and there's some speculation that it is a lake which is well known and has been well known for centuries uh, for making canoes. Hidden in soft lake bottom the decaying wooden canoes are only a little bit harder than the surrounding sand making studying them a ticklish process. The latest carbon dating results indicate a wide range in their ages. The cluster of dates is primarily in the what we would consider the archaic time period here in Florida, and that's 3,000 to 5,000 years ago for the canoe dates. Then there was another clustering of canoes that dated between 23 and 2,700 years ago, and then in the 500 to maybe 1,200 years ago. Rule says the 1,000-year gap may correspond to a time when sea level was down, with a drop in water water tables on the peninsula. Meanwhile, with present drought conditions in Florida, more boats have been turning up around the state. It's important to understand that if a canoe is removed from water, it will be destroyed upon exposure to the air. Uh, Wooden canoes are extremely fragile. They can hardly support their own weight most of the time, and they require special conservation treatment in order to become stable and to retain their original shape and size. So if you find a canoe, you need to contact a local museum or contact the Division of Historical Resources in Tallahassee, and you can find us on the web at www.flheritage.com. Still, experts are excited by the possibilities of more such finds, leading to increased understanding of the lives of ancient Floridians. I love wood, I love working wood, and I love handling the old wood, which many might think is odd, but... uh, 
I find it fascinating, always have, and I felt privileged to actually be part of this project. I think it's a part of our history that we should know more and more about, and we haven't really thought about the significance of this maritime culture to the level that we probably should have. We knew it was there, but this magnitude of so many canoes in one place really makes us question how many other lakes around the state may have more of this story. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.